It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. We've got blogs! Well, that's it. at the map of the week. Adventures in art! Le Chadron Comatique! Oui, oui! It's the Thought Eater, Thought Eater, Thought Eater RPG Show. It's the Thought Eater RPG Show. Welcome to the Thought Eater Thought Pass. <laughs> oh, what is up, everybody? It is Froth here, Thought Eater Podcast, Thought Eater Blog. I hope you are doing well. Thank you for listening, and we are back again with a Hump Day RPG show, weekly weekly show. Oh my gosh. Is it going to be one of those shows where the mouth refuses to cooperate with the brain? I mean, there are a lot of electrons and electric impulses trying to fire. What kind of show is it going to be? <laughs> uh, it's a weekly show. <laughs> oh, boy. It's a weekly show. Where I share a bunch of cool stuff that I spotted around the internet. Cool zine stuff, blogs, maps, free stuff. Bunch of other cool RPG stuff that I spot. I talk about it here, I attempt to talk about it here on the podcast, and then I put all the links up over at the Thought Eater blog. So if you hear something cool, or if you hear a lot of things cool, more likely, just go over to the Thought Eater blog and I'll have all the links in order. Uh, And just Google Thought Eater blog, easiest way to find it. Slap it on your blog roll, be done with it. So, a couple things before we get started. Uh, Yes, I'm still trying to pump and promote my Patreon. I got 25 backers right now. I want to see this thing hit 50. Can we do it? Can we do it in like a year, maybe? Can we try to do it? If you're a longtime listener or frequent listener or what have you, it's only a dollar a month to join the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash thought eater. No, I got a bunch of listeners out there. If y'all are enjoying the show, chip a dollar a month into the pot. Patreon.com forward slash Thought Eater. What else? Uh, well, looks like I might be doing, uh, trying to take a vacation at the end of May. Something we tried, you know, had planned to do last year, and then obviously that wasn't going to happen. But now with the vaccinations happening and my wife and I at least having the first vaccine, uh, looks like we're going to try it. So I'm hoping that happens. So I'm starting to look forward to it, but I'm kind of tentative because, you know, it's just one of these things where you don't know how things are going to go. I've got a lot of anxiety lately. Uh, Just the way things in the world, the world are right now, you know, it's not things I can control, but I've just got this low grade buzzing kind of anxiety with, uh, I think everybody's getting a little, little ahead of the skis on the uh, whole reopening thing. And, uh, and on the economy in general, but that's a whole nother discussion. That's a whole nother discussion. Y'all don't want to hear about that. 
want to hear about games. So a couple things before we get started. Uh, I've got a great interview this week. I tried, wanted to make this one happen during ZineQuest 3, but there were just too many, I had too many things and, and couldn't do it. But Ian Usum, who did the Mothership Zine, The Drain, for King for Zine Quest 3. Rosie, don't start. Animals are ready. Everybody's ready. Um, anyway, did The Drain, you know, really successful Kickstarter for Mothership, The Drain. Comes by, and it's a great conversation. I'm almost glad now that it's happening now instead of when ZineQuest was running. Because if you've listened to the show, one of the recent posts I, I shared from their blog was about their whole Kickstarter experience. And one of the things that I you know, saw a lot on, of, on social media during ZineQuest was questions about the Kickstarter process, this, that, and the other. And so they go into a lot of detail about, you know, their experience on the platform and everything else. So we, we, we discuss their zines, we discuss the, you know, crowdfunding in general, and then a lot of interesting discussion about building communities, what communities can accomplish when they're working together. And so it's a great conversation. So I'm really uh, happy to share, to share that with you. So got that coming up for you. Plus all the other stuff. Couple of quick things under the intro tab. First, I want to give a happy anniversary to John Stater over at the Land of Nod blog. Landofnod.blog. Happy anniversary to Nod, they say. Uh, let's see. Eleven years on the blog. So the blog the blog anniversary. Uh, but anyway, that Nod zine that Stater is known for, um, uh, you know, doesn't get the uh, doesn't get the shine it deserves, but uh, it does come up later on the program. Someone is doing read-throughs of, of the different Land of Nod, you know, Nod zines. So anyway, shout out to Stater. Also, I like to mention new bloggers when I spot them. This one started in December, so maybe just a little bit late, but still wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, Snodus, Snodus. S-N-O-D-D-A-S, Snodus, blogs over at Smokestone Tower, smokestonetower.blogspot.com. Welcome to the blogosphere, Snodus. Maps of the week. All right, so several cool map things for y'all this week. Uh, starting over at the Cartographer's Guild, cartographersguild.com. You can add cartographersguild.com to your blog roll and you'll just kind of occasionally get these cool posts come through your feed. And I love this one, the Nordarn Kingdom. This is from Simkin over there, the regional map of their actual game. I love seeing uh, people's actual, actual campaign maps, you know, and they'd say they did all the elements by hand, drawing and coloring them and then putting them together with the GIMP program. And they add new icons as their players explore it. And I love the kind of combination of the icons and the kind of hand-drawn look to it. And I really do love seeing actual campaign maps that people use in their games. So check that out, the Nordarn Kingdom. Then Nate Tremay, friend of the program, Nate Tremay from the Highland Paranormal Society, natetremay.com has a recent product called the Lost Halls. 
a postcard-sized dungeon for old-school analog adventure games. Great-looking map, great colors, great design, as you might expect from Nate. And uh, it's got to where you can buy it if you like. And uh, I would also recommend backing their Patreon at certain tiers. You know, you can get, you know, Nate Tremaine mail. And uh, I got this in the mail recently. And I love getting cool stuff like this. Unique stuff. Stuff that, uh, you know, unusual things. And, uh, and Nate's stuff is uh, certainly that. So check that out. Then I follow this blog called Map of the Week. Mapoftheweek.blogspot.com. That sounds like something I'd like, right? And, you know, these are not really necessarily gaming maps. Just interesting maps. A lot of them are historical things or tie into statistics and stuff but this was interesting to me cross stitch cartography these are maps that were done you know through stitching and sewing and there's a bunch of these i just put up one image to kind of show the fine detail uh but there's even like a a sewn globe and, and some other cool stuff so i thought this was neat so check that out that's from map of the week and then finally jared racer over at the gnome stew gaming blog is doing a review, kind of a first look at the Loki Battle Mats uh, books that I had mentioned, uh, I guess I mentioned the Kickstarters for them a while back. The Giant Book of Sci-Fi Battle Mats and the Giant Book of Battle Mats Volume 2. Now these are spiral bound, so the map books can be open and laid flat, and you can just put minis down and play right on there. I think that's really, really cool. And these look great. There's a number of different pictures uh, and everything uh, of what it looks like. So anyway, I think that's really, really cool, um, especially if we can get back to some good in-person gaming. Those are something to look at. All right. So I am very excited to have joining the program today. The creator of the Drain, a mothership zine that was successfully kickstarted as part of Zine Quest Three. They also work over at the Uncanny Spheres blog that has been featured on the Hump Day Show numerous times. They've done uh, several other products that you'll be able to find at their itch page that I link, uh, including the Dinoplex Cataclysm for Mothership. Ian Usum, welcome to the club. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to discussing uh, zines, uh, your Kickstarter experience, a bunch of stuff with you. But I always like to start these interviews the same way. I am interested in people's zine origin stories. So I was wondering what the first zines you can remember seeing were. Yeah, so um, I was completely unaware of zines until I discovered... Um, indie rpgs um so the first i can't remember the exact first one that i found it might have been mothership um but some osr adjacent thing if not mothership itself was probably the first one that is interesting to me because you're the first person i've had where an rpg zine was the first zine that they've that they saw uh, so that that is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's it was sort of cool to backwards discover the whole world of um, 
just like indie and punk zines and that kind of stuff. And so you mentioned Mothership. Obviously, that had some kind of effect on you because a lot of your previous products and and your recent Kickstarter have all you know have, have mostly been for Mothership. What is it about that game that hooked you, or is there something particular about uh, the community or the game system, or, or what is it that that kind of inspired you to work so much in that sphere? Well. I discovered Mothership um, as one of the first systems when I was branching out from playing um, D&D 5th Edition, which was my first RPG. Um, and the game I play played in with uh, some new friends I had made was just amazing. It absolutely blew my mind. Um, I'd never played anything like that, and I just sort of stuck with it. And I've it's been become the game I've played most. Um, I joined the excellent Mothership Discord, started, you know, getting involved in conversations, posting stuff to my blog, uh, and then it just sort of snowballed from there, and I sort of almost accidentally made my first product when um, a Discord member, um, Warren Denning, um, sent me a message saying that he had laid out a mini scenario that I had posted to my blog called Moonbase Blues, uh, just sort of for his own game and wanted to show it to me. Uh, and then we collaborated and eventually put that out. And then after that, I just made stuff. Um, and yeah, it's my favorite system. I run it all the time. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's been a cool ride to get from from there to here. It is awesome when a game hooks you like that and inspires you. So, um, so I recently on the Hump Day show was featuring a post you did over at your blog, Uncanny Spheres, where um, I thought it was really useful because it, you you went into depth, kind of dissecting. Uh, doing like a post-mortem on your Kickstarter experience with the drain, which congratulations, by the way, did, did really, really well. And I know that so many people have questions about um, the Kickstarter experience and where to start with ZineQuest and everything. I wanted to talk about a couple of the points you made on here. One was to do with, with the marketing. I really like how you broke down you know, by using certain referral links, you were able to see where the backers were coming from and things like that. Could you just speak generally about that a little bit and maybe just your overall kind of experience running the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure. So, um, and thank you for congratulating me. It, uh, my, my project went with three or four or five times way better than than I expected. It was it was amazing. Um, but well, I said uh, when I saw Mothership, and then I saw the word the word occult, like simply that together, it was just like I just found my my hand reflexively clicking to buy it. So. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm glad that concept resonated with people. But um, anyway, so. 
marketing is something um i don't really know much about um and i'm just sort of feeling my way in the dark um but my approach was almost entirely uh social media based um i early on when i started publishing things um i found a lot of success on reddit um which is a site that i use um myself um really the main thing about advertising rpgs um is knowing the sort of particular atmosphere and dialogue of all these different uh sites um reddit communicates in its own way it sort of likes to hear a story in a title when you're posting um they like to hear they like to see a long comment sort of explaining what your post is if you're linking directly to a kickstarter or an itch page or something um twitter wants like a punchy few you know few words describing it or a joke or um you know it has its own stuff discord has its own stuff so you sort of need to be active and looking at what other people are posting and sort of have a good sense of the lingua franca um in order to be good at posting in these different places um so before i did my kickstarter uh i looked around researched different places and i made a list of everywhere i should post and i pre-wrote all my posts um and found that reddit was again uh my my largest success according to kickstarter analytics followed by twitter um some other sites that i used um were not useful at all for example i made accounts for certain um uh web forums rpg web forums that gave me basically no traffic uh so as experiments I, I learned a little from that um yeah i don't know uh, i i plan to write a my my next next blog post on rpg industry stuff is going to be about marketing i think where i'll collect some of those thoughts a little more coherently one other thing that I thought was really interesting about the post was you were speaking to um, just in general about participating in ZineQuest and how they kind of give guidelines about what the zine needs to be and all that kind of stuff, but they really ended up being guidelines. A lot of people completely kind of ignored that and, and were still able to just kind of get the ZineQuest label, which in and of itself, people might have to just find themselves emailing the, you know, the powers that be just to get the label on there. So I thought that was interesting that it's not really, you know, some of that stuff's not really, doesn't appear to be enforced so much. Yeah. Um, I don't really know what to make of that. And we're all kind of in this 
strange limbo where they say there are rules, but they they never seem to enforce them. I'm not really sure what to do about that. I myself broke the rules. I mean, my, my zine is full color um, when it's supposed to be one color or two color. Um, uh, one thing I was planning on doing before next year, just because I saw so much confusion around this stuff in the community. I mean, I was in a uh, RPG creator Discord I was just sort of open to anyone um, creating uh, zines for ZineQuest. And tons of questions were coming in about, you know, how to get the ZineQuest tag, um, about the rules and stuff. So I'm hoping to get together with some uh, friends and make maybe some infographics or just sort of have a little mini campaign before ZineQuest season next year to get the word out a little more and clarify this stuff. Um, I, I think what we're going to see in future ZineQuests is a lot more community organization. Um, I, me and the other uh, Mothership third-party publishers, there were six of us in ZineQuest 3, got together and, and coordinated some uh, cross promotion and um, community uh, peer review of our um, campaign posts and stuff like that. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more stuff along those lines in future scene quests now that people, I think, have really realized that Kickstarter isn't really doing much to. Uh, clarify things or support creators, it's really going to have to come from us. Yeah, I like that a lot. I had Sean McCoy on the show, and they were talking about how y'all all kind of got together. You sort of decided to stagger your releases. You were kind of linking to each other's stuff to help promote it. Um, and and I, I love the idea of, of, of helping people approach you know, just kickstarting, you know, crowdfunding in general, because people can ar already be apprehensive enough and already have enough on their plate, just kind of putting the project together f for the, what should be the simplest things, you know, how to, you know, submit it and set it up for that to be a, a hurdle on top of it, I think probably just cuts a lot of people out right there. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it, it's weird because, um, you see a lot of people talking about how, you know, this is their first zine quest and, and it's, you know, this enormous amount of stress. Um, and I think that that needs to be a little more front and center in, uh, conversations around Kickstarter and, and zines is that there's all these unforeseen stressors and complications quirks to Kickstarter's back end. Just there's this ins insane front load of things you need to learn in a very short period of time. Um, and it's very difficult to really go into Kickstarter totally blind and do it. Um, 
I mean, you can do it, of course, people do it, but it's it's a very intense undertaking that can really only be mitigated with um, knowing a lot of people who've done it before and having people at your side to talk you through it uh, or consuming as many community resources as you can talking about about this stuff. And uh, before we started the interview, we were talking a little bit about maybe like what you're going to be blogging about soon. It kind of ties into what we're talking about, about working with the community and, and stuff like that. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Sure. So um, last year I participated in a um, charity project called Dissident Whispers um, that really opened my mind up to the potential of um, collective action and RPG activism. Um, it was all started by um, a now good friend of mine, Eric K. Hill, who just, who was just someone on Twitter with like 20 followers who just tweeted, hey, what if we, does anyone want to help submit to a, a project to create a zine to raise money for um, bail funds. Uh, that was at the time of uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. Uh, and it just sort of snowballed into this amazing project that almost 100 people took part in. And we've to date raised over $60,000 for um, a bail fund network. Uh, so that really sort of turned on a light bulb in my head that there's this incredible potential for someone just saying, let's do something and creating a community to make it happen. Um, and I've tried to um, take that spirit into the rest of my RPG work and life. And I've started and started building up a community for third-party mothership publishers um, where we um, sort of take collective action. Uh, we made a digital bundle back in December um, that had, uh, I think, every mothership um, zine and pamphlet for sale on itch.io bundled together and sold for a steep discount and that made us a ton of money. Uh, and then we collaborated, we used that community to collaborate on uh, ZineQuest and we have a bunch of other stuff in the works. Uh, so I'm currently writing up a blog post on community building uh, and RPG collective action um, because I really think other communities um, can benefit a lot from banding together and using uh, the your community's collective knowledge uh, and manpower to make something happen. Um, I don't ver know very much about D&D 5th edition creators, but particularly in a community like that where the IP holder is almost antagonistic to uh, the creators. 
with um you know the fairly uh demanding and um almost hostile terms and conditions for posting fifth edition content on dm's guild uh, i think they could benefit enormously from banding together and doing things together making terms almost like a miniature union um in places like where the creators of a particular game are trying to uplift the community like uh, Sean McCoy does for Mothership. It's not necessarily the same relationship, but um, it's still incredibly beneficial to have a place where you can talk, share knowledge, bring people on who are just getting into it and mentor them. Um, so that's where my head is at a lot. Uh, in RPGs now, and I'm I'm always trying to think of ways to uplift communities, um, find projects that can can benefit um, RPG creators at large. Um, one thing uh, I heard a little bit about, and we'll see uh, if it develops, is I've seen some rumblings about. Uh, non-Kickstarter crowdfunding. Uh, and I've seen a few projects on itch.io that are using that site to do a Kickstarter-esque crowdfunding campaign. Um, and I think it would be really interesting to try and put together a uh, not ZineQuest uh, off-site, uh, some sort of event that can maybe break people's ties uh from kickstarter sort of get people accustomed to the idea that you can can do rpg crowdfunding somewhere else yeah i was just talking about that itch funding on um, last week's show as part of uh, i was just talking about kind of innovation and in gaming and I, and I love everything you're talking about here uh you know strength in numbers uh, no matter if you're doing something on a completely commercial basis or if you're doing something, uh, you know, more on an activist front. And I really do feel like I, I don't think the Kickstarter label matters at all so long as you're not an island under yourself trying to do something. Um, once you have kind of that uh, critical mass of people working on something to where, you know, you can reach enough people on social media or, or what have you. Um, I, I don't think it matters whether it's Kickstarter or somewhere else. If you've got, you know, cool, creative people working on something, it's going to draw eyes to it. I don't think it really matters, you know, what the umbrella uh, of the, you know, the funding mechanism is. So I'm really thrilled to see the itch funding. I think that's going to be strong. I think it's going to just blow up over the next, you know, couple of years. Yeah, I will say one caveat to that is I don't entirely agree, at least yet, that it doesn't Kickstarter doesn't matter um, because at least from my experience, seeing the analytics on my Kickstarter and seeing those from um, others that people have shared is Kickstarter drives a lot of its own traffic, um, like uh, two thirds of my um, funding came from internal 
Kickstarter internally. Um, so at least for now, Kickstarter does matter. Um, you, you really do make a lot of money just by going through them. Um, I think certainly if you have a following, you could get pretty far, uh, going and doing crowdfunding on another site like itch. Um, but it's going to take some work, I think, building up the use cases of these other avenues um, before you can really get uh, a, a parody to Kickstarter. When you say it the is kind of driven by Kickstarter, is that you think that's just like their zine quest promo or the fact that your stuff came out when people were looking at zine quest or was it something else? Um, so in the Kickstarter backend after a project you can, and I think during the project too, you can see, um, referral links. Uh, so you can create your own referral link. So I could create a link and then post it to Twitter and then, I would be able to look through the Kickstarter backend and see, okay, um, two people bought, two people backed my project based on this particular post. Um, but also, Kickstarter tries to figure out where people uh, came to your project, um, even without doing that. Uh, and it shows you um, where, where, how through Kickstarter uh, people backed your post. So it breaks down by a lot of different categories. The zine quest tag on mine, I had maybe like one or two backers just browsing zine quest. Um, mostly it's just sort of broad discovery. Um, just sort of Kickstarter promoting projects from looking at another project or just looking at the, the homepage or different things like that. Um, I don't know a ton about Kickstarter to be able to really parse exactly like what each uh, analytic breakdown corresponds to what, but my best guess is that Kickstarter just has a lot of users uh, and people go there. Um, and um, uh, its system of automatically emailing people at different points uh, in your campaign when it launches 48 hours and then eight hours before its conclusion. Um, it, that does a lot. Um, it emails people who um, have backed similar projects, I think, as well. Um, it just sort of naturally does a lot to promote projects. Um, and yeah, that's sort of like, um, I know that not just from your post, but talking to a lot of people, you know, uh, people have a number of, of potential customers kind of following their project. And then that last kind of push where everybody kind of gets an email and it's about to, you know, they've got 48 hours left. I know everybody gets kind of a, like a rush there. And then you might also have some dropouts at certain times. So that makes sense that there's almost like a, I wouldn't maybe call it an AI sort of thing, but I, I like that it's able to um, say, hey, this person back to Mothership zine before, we'll tell them about the drain, and then 
you know, remind them about it when it gets closer. That is something that, you know, to completely compete with, with Kickstarter, you know, itch or something would have to kind of build that sort of communication sort of system into it to, to kind of fully, you know, fully, uh, encompass everything Kickstarter does. So that's a good point. Yeah. And, and I think itch has some of those features built in. I mean, I've looked at some of the, um, crowdfunding projects there and you can really almost imitate Kickstarter through, um, like, uh, dev updates sort of simulate starters campaign updates, um, and stuff like that. Um, so, but it's not really built for that purpose of crowdfunding. So I don't know. We'll see. I think it'll, it'll take a lot more people doing it, uh, seeing how well that goes, but, um, I think the use case for building out itch specifically as a crowdfunding alternative to Kickstarter will be people who can't use Kickstarter for geographical reasons or, or any other reason, uh, or would prefer not to for, for ethical reasons or, or whatever. Um, my guess is Kickstarter will probably always be at least for the foreseeable future more financially viable uh if there you don't have any reason to um not use it um, but correct me if i'm wrong though you 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 you're able to itch takes a smaller amount of of uh you know res residual you know a smaller amount of um payment from you though right Somewhat. Um, Kickstarter takes a 5% cut um, for themselves, and then there's a payment processing fee that's the same as Itch. Um, oh, okay. Itch, I didn't realize it was that generous. Yeah. And that makes what you were talking about uh, with the DMs Guild all the more shameful. I think, yeah. what do they take, like 50% or something? Yeah, that's 50%. And then drive through, which doesn't have the same things around owning your IP if you post there at least uh, and you know accommodates a lot more systems and stuff they take 35% uh, which is also quite high yes um, you know it's funny talking about the the DMs guild stuff because there have been several products that people have created and put on there that have had really astronomical sales and there have even been cases where people have grouped together and had really successful projects uh, for charitable causes or just to highlight, you know, marginalized groups or what have you. And I always am thinking, like, is it so worth it to be able to mention the location in the Forgotten Realms or something where you're willing to take give away half your proceeds? Yeah, um, at least... So working on Dissonant Whispers, um, it's sold on DriveThru. And thankfully, we were able to get in contact with DriveThru RPG. Uh, and they set up a special charity situation where they, they brought um, the, the National Bail Fund Network on as like an official charity. And they take a reduced cut. So every sale of Dissonant Whispers on DriveThru RPG goes directly to the charity. And... Uh, takes much less than 35%. It's like 5 or 10% or something. 
So uh, that is awesome. And that kind of speaks to um, making direct contact with the platform rather than just assuming the worst. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. In that case, it was um, it, it was definitely a, a good situation. And I, I'm happy that, you know, drive through was able to work with us um, and make that happen. Um, but yeah, definitely broad, broad, more broadly speaking, um, being not someone who's very familiar with, um, fifth edition creators, it is interesting to see people make that trade off and go to, um, DMs guild over drive through RPG for the much larger cut and, um, the rights they're giving away for going there. Um, because uh, I've seen people say that thing, fifth edition stuff sells more there. I'm not, I've looked at sort of the stats. Um, both sites show up medals uh, that are different tiers of sales numbers. It's like at 50, 100, 250, etc. Uh, and drive-through has a lot more medals overall. Um, so I don't know. It, it seems. I'm speculating it might just in fact be a lot more viable to publish 5e stuff on DMs Guild, but it seems almost like a trap where people are like, oh, well, this is the place to publish 5e stuff. I should publish there. When I'm, yeah, I'm not personally convinced because having looked at the Kickstarter numbers, you know, the most successful projects and everything from last year, you know, I, I believe it was something like seven out of the top 10 you know, that weren't just for like dice or, or something like that were all 5e projects and they're not having to give up anywhere near the 50%. So I, I, I get that there are going to be a lot of eyes on um, the DMs guild for that. But I think that ultimately if, if you become established, certainly after a couple of titles on there and then continue to use it, I would say you're getting diminishing returns financially. Yeah. I, I would say so. Um, I, I I almost want to be... I, I don't want to create 5th edition content because um, I don't play the system. But I, given that I'm sort of getting into this stuff, I, I think it would be really interesting to dig in there and tr see if 5th edition creators would be interested in like community uh, collective action and and banding together and, and doing stuff and sort of breaking free of that. Um, I think there's probably enormous untapped potential there to create new ecosystems where people aren't paying, giving away all these rights and 50% and of their proceeds to um, Watsi and One Bookshelf. So the drain... Uh like I said, the, just the idea occult mothership hooked me as well as the amazing art. Um, I know we've already been talking about a lot of stuff, but you want to, I, I know it'll eventually be out where other people can buy it. You want to just speak briefly about what the drain's all about? Sure. So uh, the drain is a funnel adventure uh, in the style of uh Dungeon Crawl Classics Funnel Adventures, where you're running multiple uh, level zero characters per player. 
through a deadly meat grinder. Um, the drain is a massive colony ship. Uh, it is a sort of rotating um, cylindrical ship where there's uh, a landscape on the interior side. Um, and it is a battlefield uh, at the time of the game uh, where corporations and um, individual groups are fighting each other for uh, control of the ship. And the players are sort of sent through to crawl through the battlefield and get to the other side to attempt to claim command and take control of the ship. Um, so uh, I was intrigued at the thought of doing a uh, funnel for Mothership, and I, I went for it, and I thought that sort of a an actual battlefield would be an interesting uh, setting, and I added some weird occult elements to it. There's um, a transmission that is drawing all these different people to the ship, playing from the ship. That's sort of a mysterious religious thing. Uh, and there's evidence of that in the adventure. Uh, and yeah, after after sort of digging in and, and playtesting the adventure, it turns out that um, funnels are perfect for Mothership, and it works super smoothly, um, and it's really amazingly fun to to dig in and uh, even, in, especially with the Mothership's panic system, that um, sort of like death spiral uh, is even more fun when you have like 12 characters and people are panicking left and right, and yeah, it's 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 great fun. I really love funnel adventures and you know for people that might might not know what that is um, like Ian mentioned zero level characters are not really quite characters on paper yet but you're playing more than one of them and you know whoever survives the adventure you know can end up becoming a character and what I love about them is that it completely takes the pressure off you're expecting to die you're it, you know, it, it almost makes the death fun, you know? And uh, so it, it's a, it's almost like um, one of the reasons I like Call of Cthulhu so much is because you're, you're, you know, you're not promised some, you know, cushy retirement <laughs> plan, quite the opposite. And so it kind of frees you up to play the characters without so much of a, an apprehension or, you know, treating them too precious or anything like that. Yeah, it's a really good way to um, acclimate uh, new players or players who are used to more sort of like heroic, robust uh, sort of characters that you, you hold on to for a long time to a more dangerous, deadly system like Mothership. Um, uh, in my in my games running the drain, by the end of the session, 
people are almost competing to die in the coolest way. Uh, and like what, what you talk about the session with your friends afterwards is, you know, how, you know, Brad got uh, sucked out the hall or, you know, someone's leg got blown off or, or whatever. Um, those stories of character deaths are what survive and what um, everyone has fun with. That's beautiful. Well, um, I have really enjoyed having you on. I'm going to have links up to Ian's itch page, Twitter, as well as their Uncanny Spheres blog. Definitely be following along with that. Ian, I like to end these interviews with the questions three. Are you ready for the questions three? Sure. Okay, so question number one. What makes zines so magical? Um, I would say from an RPG context, because um, like I said at the top of the show, I'm not super familiar with zines outside of it. Um, it's just the perfect size for an adventure. Um, once you get into larger page counts, sort of things sort of get away, come sprawling when you're sticking to, you know, 20 to 40 pages in there. It just feels good um, to have, you know, a nice handful of locations, some resources. Uh, it's something you can digest in a sitting and run for, you know, a few sessions. And it's just a nice little bite-sized bit of RPG con. We talked sort of peripherally about this, but what is something you've learned making zines you wish you knew when you started? Hmm. Um, well, I'll cheat a little bit because it's something I still don't really know about, um, but it's probably the world of printing. Um, I've relied on Mixum a lot for my RPG printing because it's very accessible and easy. Uh, but um, trying to contact local printers and, and learn about the printing process and industry is something that I've um, found sort of difficult to pick up along the way. And I wish I knew then, as well as now, uh, a little more about that. And finally, do you have a favorite zine? Hmm. Yes. Um, that would be uh, The Black Heart of Paradise, um, which is a mothership zine, one of the first ones, a third-party mothership zine, written by um, uh, Schwa Kyle, which is... Uh, a very, very, very weird adventure on a space station with a terrible alien from another dimension. I am not familiar with that one, so I'm going to have to track it down. It's, it's amazing. It's, my, it's one of my favorite books of, of any kind, let alone RPGs. Well, awesome. Well, you know, I love uh, where your mind is at with uh, with working together with people for different 
you know, towards different goals. Uh, and again, congratulations on the success of the drain. I can't wait to get my filthy mitts on it. So Ian, uh, use some, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for having me. All right. So yeah, thanks again to Ian for being on the show. Great conversation. Hope y'all enjoyed that. And I've got links up to their itch page, their blog, uncanny spheres, their Twitter, as well as a pledge manager where you can go ahead. If you missed out on the Kickstarter for the drain, it is in pre-order now. So don't miss out on this one. You know, you heard Ian talking about it. Sounds really cool. So check that out. Got all those links. Thanks again, Ian, for being here. A few other zine related things for y'all this week. Wayne over at Wayne's Books. I love Wayne's Books. Wayne's Books dot games. You can find rare stuff over there. And then they also do, you know, like a blog that's kind of supports their store. And they're always taking a look at some unique, hard to find rarity out there. And in this post, they're talking about the Traveler Digest zine from back in the day, High Passage. So they've got some of these in the shop. These were produced by FASA Games back then, uh, around uh, 1981, 1982. So have a look over at that. Pretty cool. Nice to see those in the collection. See, I, I don't think I could ever run a bookshop like Wayne does because I would just want to keep everything, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that is, that is probably like the job I'm least suited for is, uh, being, uh, is selling books. Uh, I'm kind of like, you know, the opposite too much, the opposite. So anyway, check that out. Shout out to Wayne over at methods and madness methods at madness.blogspot.com. They are, I can't remember. You'd think I would memorize everyone's names eventually. Eric Diaz over there. Uh, featuring a review of a zine from last year's zine quest. This one has some startlingly, startlingly awesome art. The Bone Age. Weird school science fantasy. And it's got a full game system as well as a setting. And they do a review of that, so you can check that out. The Bone Age, that is a cool-looking zine. I mentioned during the intro that uh, John Stater's Nod magazine was going to come up. Uh, this is a zine that, just like I said, I don't think gets enough um, love, doesn't get mentioned enough. It's, uh, But anyway, um, Jonathan over at the Deep Sheep blog, deepsheep.com, has been doing a series called Nod by Nod, where they kind of do a kind of read through and let you know what's in each issue. They're on Nod number five from back in October 2010. So check that out where you can uh, get an idea of the contents of that. Uh, yeah, I was talking about Gnarled Monster. Someone I follow on Twitter, Alex Damasino. I'm probably pronouncing that that wrong. It might be Demachino. Uh, but anyway, I know them more as Gnarled Monster from their Twitter handle, but they did a zine that's been getting a lot of love beyond the Borderlands, and that is getting reviewed over at the Rolling Boxcar blog by Modoc31. Uh, so check that out. I believe that 
You know what? I'm not sure if that was part of Zine Quest last year. It might. I think it just. I'm not exactly sure, but a, a recently released Zine uh, with uh, some just amazing art, cartography. It looks really, really good. So check that out. Review of Beyond the Borderlands. That's at Rolling Box Cars. And then finally at El Dado Inquieto, El Dado Inquieto.blogspot.com. Uh, they're doing a review of a zine that is both in English and Spanish, and it is available, pay what you want, over a drive through for 5th edition, Satanic Mars. What? Satanic Mars. Yes, the trash metal role-playing game. And, uh, yeah. They say that they purchased the game back in physical format in 2017, but now it's more widely available. Like I say, it's got both English and Spanish. It's taken the basis of the 5th edition SRD and kind of mixed together underground fanzines, adult fantasy and science fiction comics, heavy metal and punk music to grade, you know, B, you know, B movies and everything else to come up with Satanic Mars. So, yeah, that one's kind of, you know, maybe an acquired taste, but looks pretty cool. I, I, I guess I have to mention now the, the Satan shoes that people have been talking about. I don't know if people have been seeing this, but there's a rapper that made a limited edition. Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. The, the, the shoes are Nikes, but they're not like, you know, it's not like Nike decided, let's do Satan's shoes, you know what I'm saying? Um, the, I saw a program where it was Jeff Goldblum, I believe. And yeah, it was Jeff Goldblum. It was on like Disney Plus. And there, Jeff Goldblum was looking into like, you know, the market for like, you know, tennis shoes and sneakers and everything and how it's just, you know, a huge industry of collectors and people having conventions and and then there are a number of these like shoe designers that will will take shoes and kind of modify them to your to your liking. And a lot of these people make just a ton of money, and they'll add gold foil or you know modify modify the shoes in different ways. Well, anyway, the rapper had the Satan shoes made. They've got like a pentagram on there, and there's even like a single drop of blood like somewhere in the sole, I guess. And uh, it's just ended up being honestly like epic level trolling of the uh you know the extreme conservative right you know what i mean like they're they've they're up in the arms about the satan shoes you know what i'm saying so to me the whole thing is is kind of quite amusing but uh but the price tag for the shoes is not amusing i think they're selling them for like you know over a thousand dollars so but anyway so that when i saw the satanic mars uh 5e zine it made me think of that i didn't really have a point with it gary con so kind of a reminder that we are still very much dealing with this COVID thing gary con was held at, over the weekend and you know it was done virtually and uh but people still had a really good time and a number of people were posting about it Grumpy Wizard at the grumpywizard.home.blog uh, has a re report on 
the games they were running and how the organization went because hey people are making this up as they go along you know these virtual conventions and and stuff like this i was talking about goodman games uh, i think it was cyclops con they were a part of and you know people are, are, are making do with what they can doing the best they can with it and uh, you know and learning as they go um and you know a lot of people are getting kind of ambitious with with their timelines about uh you know when they're going to have in-person conventions and you know we've come a long way with the vaccines but they're all you know i'm not trying to be a bummer but there are all these variants and you know we don't know if it's going to become endemic you know a lot of epidemiologists and everything uh believe that it will and and so we don't know how this is going to exactly i mean it's already completely changed a lot of things uh but we're we're not sure what no one knows what the future is going to hold right so but anyway the um gary Kahn looks successful at paleo logos over at osr grimoire one of my fave blogs osrgrimoire.blogspot.com had a post all about it number of different links uh chain mills 50th anniversary celebration and um stuff that they ran uh Wow, they ran two sessions of the final round of the Gen Con 9 tournament, originally held in 1976, the Temple of Dikla and the Helm of Velastum, designed by Bob Blake. So that looks cool. That would have been cool to be a part of. Um, at the world of Philosopher Zeus, philosopherzeus.wordpress.com, I've just got all their posts tagged for the new, for the most recent Gary Con. Uh, they've got four posts up about, you know, their, their recap and everything. And then uh, finally, over at the old school FRP Tumblr, oldschoolfrp.tumblr.com, they put up an image showing that the winner of this year's Gygax Lifetime Achievement Award was Jeff Easley. And I have to say, Jeff Easley's art, kind of in a lot of ways, and Easley and... Sutherland's art and I know Errol Otis too but for some reason the stuff that stuck in my mind the most is the Easley and the Sutherland stuff um, maybe Easley more than anybody else uh, even the dra the different Dragon Magazine covers they did and you know just uh, you know various um, book art and everything else but anyway big fan of of jeff easley and it's cool to see this image of them receiving uh receiving that award so anyway long-time listeners of the show know when conventions happen and people are blogging and everything about it, i try to share it so it's interesting this year to kind of share stuff from uh you know from people doing the online thing but you know it is what it is um people adjusting and adapting to the times uh, one cool thing, I haven't gotten to watch it yet, but, uh, my friend's brother, who is the reason I even got into gaming, we borrowed the books, you know, that they had, uh, the AD&D books and Marvel superheroes and, and everything else, um, uh, from them. They participated in a game with, uh, like a celebrity game, um, as part of this. And I haven't gotten to watch it yet. You know, they were one of the, uh, like a creator of the show Eureka and also had a lot to do with the recent Hellboy movie. So, uh, they're doing a, um, celebrity kind of stream with, uh, David, is it David Harbor? I hope I'm pronouncing that, remembering the name 
correctly that was played Hellboy and it's also in um, Stranger Things and everything. So they were part of that game. Haven't gotten to watch it yet, but it's funny how stuff comes full circle from when I'm 10 years old and we're borrowing the older brother's books to play. And now they're doing like a celebrity kind of D&D game. And it just shows, you know, the what a lifelong hobby, you know, how gaming can really hook you at a young age. So, so anyway, congrats to folks that uh, managed to have a good time with Gary Khan, and we'll see what happens going forward with these conventions. Random tables. All right, let's look at some random tables, and these are kind of of the uh, of the just weird and funny variety. You know, it's good to have some random tables that you that you game with. But one of the fun things is people just making random tables for the sake of making random tables. And maybe you use them in a game, but sometimes they're just fun to kind of make lists and see what uh, see what we get. Like from over at crumblingkeep.com. Shout out to the Crumbling Keep. Great site. They do uh, paid, you know, GM services, uh, blog, adventures, bunch of stuff. And now we've got the random table. What is that gnome eating? If you've ever been gaming, the party happens upon a gnome. The gnome is eating something, but then they're like, uh, GM, what is that gnome eating? Well, let's figure it out. It's like a three-column table with a D20. Where is my D20? Let's figure out what that gnome is eating. That gnome is eating... Layered double bops, fried sweet mush. <laughs> so it's got one column that's like where the food is from. Some of them are, you know, sound like a, you know, a tavern or restaurant or, or, or you know, a, a specific merchant or whatever. Then it's got kind of the way it's prepared or a, kind of a descriptive term. And then what the food actually is. So let's do one more of these. What is that gnome eating? They're eating Lady Awfulshers. Greasy. Fritters. <laughs> Lady Awfulshers Greasy Fritters. That's what that gnome's eating. Uh, again, that's over at Crumlin Keep. Now over to Goodberry Monthly. Martino over there at the Goodberry Monthly blog goodberrymonthly.blogspot.com what hath Captain Meth cook, cooked up? And they've got uh, an, an image from the, the, the Lighthouse movie over here that kind of fits it. Captain Meth Cook is cooking something up. A drug cook in their basement. And they say that their party they're, how'd you like to be in this game? Their party has had a drug cook in their basement for the longest time, and they were never really sure how to roleplay them until a few weeks ago when off the cuff they decided they should be like an old sea captain. So Sir Morgan Bacardi Kraken Havana Appleton is cooking up some drugs. So, yeah, D10 tables. What is, what is Captain Meth Cook cooking up? Now, this is one that... Very unlikely you might use it in your game, but we're going to roll on it anyway. Maybe you will use it in your game. Maybe these will give you inspiration for whole adventures. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. All right, so the drug appearance. 
whatever they are cooking up, looks just like a wrinkly black moldy chunk. An R, it'll, what will it do to you? Uh oh, drop the dice. The black moldy chunk will put hair on your armpits and gusto in your gizzard. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, the side effects might include lockjaw. Yeah, sounds about right. And and also hallucinations about spiders. Oh, so it'll put hair on your armpits, gusto in your gizzard with a healthy dose of lockjaw and hallucinations about spiders. Hump day blogorama. All right, moving right along. I feel like I'm kind of holding on for dear life this week. Uh, it was one of those weeks where I had to do, you know, kind of organize all my you know, the stuff that I've been saving and, and everything else and do the recording on the same day because this is a week whipped around on me really fast. I don't know if what happens is I have to have a schedule kind of to be able to do anything. So, you know, I'll record if I'm doing an interview, I'll record the interview on a Saturday then I always do a blog post. Well, you know, I'll do five minute Friday on Fridays, record the interviews on Saturdays. I usually put up a um, 5e blog post on Sundays, kind of highlighting, uh, you know, DIY stuff on the DMs Guild that gets buried. And throughout that, I'm setting aside blog posts, you know, checking out different social media and everything else. Um, and then by Monday, I'm trying to, on Monday, have the blog post kind of put together. That lets me meditate on the different topics and everything, so I'm a little prepared when I record this on Tuesday to put out first thing on Wednesday mornings, U.S. time. Didn't work out quite that way this week. Uh, had to do it all today for me, which is on Tuesday. So that kind of leads into this first thing because this is over at uh, the 10-foot pole review site, Bryce Lynch, known to be a very, very tough reviewer. You know, they, they don't, if they hate something, you know, they're they're ruthless about it. But it's, you know, when they like something, conversely, it's it's really high praise and it it's kind of usually a signal to check something out. Well, they're reviewing an adventure of the Cape of Old Demons from Michael Raston for their Order Fantasy D6 game and you might recognize the name Michael Raston because I've sung Michael's praises numerous times on this program, especially for their Star Dogs referee handbook, which to me is kind of like a go-to. It's like the old um, Judges Guild's ready ref sheets for sci-fi games. It's kind of like a thing you should own, and it's very affordable. You can find it over at Lulu. Well, Michael is kind enough to gift me a, a copy of, of this but I haven't it was just like a couple days ago so I haven't had a chance to dig in yet uh, but I will um, but in the meantime Bryce Lynch over at 10 foot pole is giving it a great review in fact they say uh, what's a quote here the whole thing is great they love the world and the thing that's you know they love the world it takes place in. The only criticism they have of this, and this is an adventure, like I say, for their D6 game, and you could use it for anything. They say it describes 24 adventure regions, seven home-based regions, 
with lots of random tables. And they complain. The one one of the things that Bryce complains about is too many random tables. To which I say, would you criticize a flower for being too beautiful? Would you criticize a medley for being too catchy? Come on now. Too many random tables. Uh, Michael Raston is one of the, you know, ma- you know the, a lot of the people I feature on this show, as far as the random tables go, are masters of the art. There's an art and a beauty to it. Michael is one of these people. So um, I have a feeling that whereas Bryce views that all, res- you know, no disrespect, where, whereas Bryce views that as a weakness of this, this adventure setting, I think it's going to be one of the things I like most about it. So anyway, check that out. The Cape of Old Demons from Michael Raston. Over at the Alchemist Nocturne blog, alchemistnocturne.blogspot.com, Jack Tremaine's blog, they ha- they're talking about one-roll combat. And what they're talking about here is when your roll to hit and damage are resolved with a single roll. And... So they're talking about into the eye. They're talking about fixed damage, which a lot of things, do, you know, have. They're talking about ideas of removing hit points. So it's just kind of meditation on the mechanics of doing the two hit and damage roll at the same time, which is interesting because my up came, upcoming game, 12v12, a D12-based, ultra-simple, easy-to-hack game system, which will be in pamphlet form, which I'm thrilled to say Hodag RPG uh, did some illustrations for. It uses one roll combat. Well, really, it's a dual roll. The whole mechanics for all the whole game, as you might guess, being called 12v12, is you're rolling a d12 against the GM. Uh, but your roll depend, you know, your roll in relation to the GM determines whether you hit or not. But then also the number that you rolled determines how much damage you do so it's got the hit and damage together but also tied into a mechanic of uh of a uh you know player versus gm role so anyway but these are some other ideas on one role combat and how that works another game does that i'm pretty sure uh numenera and all that is is uh like you know the not only is it fixed damage but the GM never rolls in the first place. So it's even another layer of kind of innovation and creativity around that. You know, I always at least want people, um, especially face-to-face, because on virtual tabletops, it's usually got to where you click and roll and it automatically do the damage. But one of the things that you had to do with 4th edition D&D, and any game where it, it allows it, um, roll your attack and damage dice at the same time. Even if you miss, at least you've rolled the damage. It, it really speeds up, you know, that extra few seconds per roll um, taken throughout, you know, added up throughout an entire game session really saves a lot of time. So, so anyway, some cool stuff. I don't know if I've featured uh, Jack Tremaine's Alchemist Nocturne blog before, but uh, that was a, a good post, something to think about the different mechanics of one-roll combat. Paul Beakley over the Indie Game Reading Club. Love this blog. I've mentioned it numerous times. They're a really talented writer, and they're always kind of looking at stuff that maybe is not not in my wheelhouse that I wasn't aware of. And, and so this article is called Small But Fierce, Four Reviews for March 2021. 
talking about four surprisingly compact recent releases that I have not heard of any of these. One is called Rebel Crown, um, and it's a Forged in the Dark style game, part of Zine Quest 2. Really nice uh, looking zine, apparently, you know, uh, 63 pages zine, kind of zine game. Uh, so they're talking about Rebel Crown over there, a game called Arcana Academy. Uh, so powered by the Apocalypse game, Little Monster Detectives, which looks really good. Um, and let's see, what is the other one here? And Cobwebs, a little box set game. Uh, kind of, they say, solidly in story game territory. But I love that it's like this little kind of box set, unusual game called Cobwebs. So anyway, these are four games that I would have completely, you know, never heard of. And, and it's just, a, you know, shows how broad the hobby is. There's so many different releases and creative people working and everything. And, and it sometimes, you know, you can put out something that looks really cool and no one notices it. That's kind of what I try to do with the show is put some shine on things that folks are doing uh, in the DIY space. So go over and check these out. These are all, all four of them look appealing to me. Rebel Crown, Arcana Academy, Little Monster Detectives, and Cobwebs. Four games to check out. Uh, th thanks to Paul Beakley at the Indie Game Reading Club for sharing some images and talking about those. Over at the Liber Ludorum blog, very interesting post. Uh, Sword and Satire. So they're looking at three self-reflexive satirical games games and game adjacent materials that target the design of and the culture around D&D. All three focus on both figuratively and literally cutting down this megalithic structure so that we, we can gain some perspective on it and its influence. I do enjoy satire, and so the three games are Here is Some and D&D from Christopher Green, uh, Sigma Bandits from Chiquita Fajita, this one looks particularly amusing. And a dragon game from Chris Bissett. So if you've never heard of these, have a look at this and, and read more about some of the contents. Some of the contents are decidedly R-rated. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on them here on the program. But go over there and have a look at it. Uh, Liber Ludorum, great writer over there. Uh, Spent some time flipping around some of their other posts. Really enjoy that blog. I'm not sure if I've featured that one before, so check it out. Uh, okay, I'm over at the Arcane Eye blog, arcaneeye.com. How to run D&D for kids is this post. Completely different. Let's go from that to, to running D&D for kids. Um, but they talk about this article. They say it's sponsored by Art Camp 504 a virtual program providing children an opportunity to learn, create, and socialize in a fun and friendly space. So, uh, and it's talking about these folks behind this Art Camp 504 initiative that do D&D classes and workshops for kids. I love that. They talk about how to run D&D for kids, the benefits of doing it, introducing kids to D&D, playing with D&D with kids online, a bunch of other stuff. Really great posts, something to take a look at. Uh, and then speaking of something not for kids, you know, back to not for kids related material, 
Now, this is cool, though. If you're a fan of sleaze and exploitation movies and grindhouse films and everything else, uh, I know Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast is uh, The Highway of Blood, a 1970s scenario for Call of Cthulhu. This is being reviewed uh, by Pookie UK over at Reviews from Rulie. I actually picked this one up, uh, and it is pretty awesome. I want to make a print copy of it. Um, but like I say, it's like a grindhouse 1970s exploitation Call of Cthulhu adventure. Um, who does it say did it, though? It was up on the Miskatonic repository, so it's a third-party deal. Let's see if they mention the... Anyway, it's kind of more of a... They mention it's more of a sandbox style than kind of a traditional Cthulhu, uh, you know, more linear type adventure, but uh, they, they say that it has, you know... Influences such as Duel, I Spit on Your Grave, Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Death Proof, etc. So, not for everybody, definitely not for kids. But Highway of Blood, if you're if you have a love for you know sleaze and that kind of stuff, then and Call of Cthulhu, this might be right up your alley. Definitely right up my alley. All right, Anarchy Dice. Finally, uh, the last thing I got on the blogs, Anarchy Dice at anarchydice.wordpress.com has been doing reviews of all the, you know, the 100-plus one-page dungeon um, uh, submissions for, for, from, from last year, you know, that were released this year. Uh, they're doing kind of like little blurbs about each and every one of them. And so I put these up. Uh, under the free stuff a few weeks ago where you can download all of the one page dungeons PDFs and they're doing like little blurbs. So that might be helpful rather than trying to just search through a hundred pages, not knowing what you're looking looking at. They've got a series of posts here where you can kind of see tiny little capsule, one paragraph reviews of what each of them are all about. And I thought that was cool of them to do too. It's a lot of work. So check that out. That's at anarchydice.wordpress.com. Free stuff. All right. A few free things that I spotted. Uh, you know, I'm sure I missed some things, but I found a few for you. Of course, Hodag. Hodag RPG has something on their quest for one pamphlet game a week for a year. If you did not listen to Hodag when they were on the show, check that out. Scream Into the Void is their latest. You can download that for free over at Itch. Game a week. What can you say? Over at Acratic Wizardry. Uh, they, let's see if I got a name. Acrasia. They put up a PDF, uh, or rather found a PDF in the Wayback Machine. Uh that they had lost that's like their house rules for sword and sorcery games for um you know oh D, bx whatever you know if you want to check out a pdf of some different kind of house rules and stuff that you can maybe use in your games they got that up um frugal gm links over to the two-minute tabletop token editor that has apparently had some upgrades since they mentioned the first time a while back. 
if you are gaming online, which I know most of us are at this point, uh, and you like to kind of make tokens for monsters and everything, there's all kinds of different types, humanoids, beasts, constructs, giants, oozes, all this kind of stuff where you can kind of create your own token with the two-minute tabletop token editor. So anyway, got that free resource link up. And then I could have put this under the random tables, but K-Tray over at D4 Caltrops has put together another free PDF, Wilderness Encounter Vignette Tables. And so, yeah, let's get a put my dice up but we need a free roll on this we need to roll we need 2d6 for this whoops oh and this is 10 pages wow so they got a variety yeah you guys got to uh, uh, download this one uh let's roll on little vignettes uh jungles and tropical forests let's see what i get here uh a persistent parade of ants marching down a trunk, each bearing clipped leaves and petals. A little scenery there. Let's do one more on here. How about the barren wastelands? What do I spot? Uh, what What does the party spot over here? Uh, the only thing growing here is a sense of loneliness and unease. So this is a 10-page PDF. Snag. Uh, with, uh, like I say, different wilderness encounter vignettes, not necessarily, you know, monster encounters or whatever, but more kind of flavor um, that you can give the party. So that's a, a helpful uh, group of tables there from K-Tray. The final topic. All right, for the final topic, how many times have we all heard, don't split the party? Don't split the party. Don't eat the yellow snow. Uh, great article on splitting the party over at the Tribality blog, tribality.com, from Tomas Jimenez Rioja. And this is all about splitting the party. GM tips and tricks to successfully split the party. So why is not splitting the party a thing to begin with? It really kind of comes from games, mostly D&D, where, as Tomas puts it, some games like D&D usually revolve around keeping your party together, fighting groups of enemies, balance to confront the number of player, player characters playing at the time. If you have some PCs split off and fight a group of enemies on their own, the battle might be much more difficult. Yeah, it's easier to die when you split the party in a game like D&D. Or, you know, often is, just in terms of combat but D&D of course is not the only game out there and even in D&D you can still have a good time splitting the party splitting the party really makes sense in a lot of situations and they get into that again this is a great post some great tips I'm just going to go through the post and give my thoughts on it as well they talk about from a strategic standpoint splitting the party can make sense uh, you can cover more ground in less time. Uh, and there are certain kinds of situations where splitting the party makes sense, even from just like a cinematic standpoint. Like uh, they mentioned, like doing a heist, you know, maybe someone is out in the van, you know, ha you know hacking on the computer 
a driver planning an escape route, someone breaking into a building, whatever. The game where I've had the most party splitting, I guess you could say, is Call of Cthulhu. It is absolutely a game of kind of you know, gathering clues in a lot of ways. And each, each different investigator type has their own strengths. And there is a lot of ground to cover. So I'm thinking about games where it's maybe set in London or whatever. And part of what they need to accomplish is going to a library. Part of it is questioning somebody. Part of it is going to, you know, look for clues at a different building, whatever. In a game where you don't expect to turn a corner and run into a hundred goblins, splitting the party makes a lot of kind of cinematic sense, right? And it can also work to different strengths of different characters in the game so uh, but they start to talk about some of the problems or alleged problems that can come about from it that aren't anything related to dying in combat and they're talking speaks at length about meta knowledge the idea that you know everybody's sitting at the same table or they're all on the same zoom call or whatever and you know when you're splitting off to you know group a goes to do something group b is hearing all that and you don't want them to necessarily, you know, uh, use the knowledge that they're hearing when they weren't there. You know, they're not going, you know, they're, although they're hearing what is happening, they're not actually there. So they can't use the knowledge. This is the kind of thing to me that is, it looks like a much bigger problem on paper than it is in the game. They talk about solving it with sort of the idea of a social contract, everybody just agreeing not to use that knowledge, which is just, I think, just the natural way that anybody's going to solve that, you know, <clears throat> again, I think sometimes, uh, in the same way that adventurers can read better than they run or run a lot better than they read. This is the kind of problem that looks bigger on paper or seems bigger in people's minds than it, than it ends up actually being at the table. Um, but part, probably my favorite part about the post and it's the whole thing's a really good post but um where where they they give some really good thoughts is talking about engaging the party as a gm when you have split them and this is something that does require some skill i think in practice and the more you do it the better you get at it and and that's how how are you going to engage them when some people are playing and some people aren't certainly you see this sometimes in combat if com if the combat rounds are are uh, uh, you know long enough? Certainly, in a game like 4E, where where you know it might be, or even you know high level third edition or moderate to high level fifth edition, you're waiting. Or you know people are starting to look at their phones and they're disengaged. Uh, sometimes I would think in in combat because it takes so long to get to them. The same way, if you split the party and 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 you spend a long time on one group while the other is just twiddling their thumbs or whatever, they're going to, to zone out and, and uh, lose their engagement. So they talk about how important the pacing is. Um, here are some tricks they mentioned to accomplish the, you know, keeping people engaged. They talk about focusing for a bit on each group, jumping between the two of them. Um, 
it's much better to do this rather than have one group play for two hours and then having the other group do the same, obviously. And you, do, I would do those transitions kind of quick. You can almost, and they mentioned this a little bit too, having interesting transitions and cliffhangers and everything. Sometimes gaming often will have like natural points, which feel like a great time to leave it. Like just as one group opens the book and and you see you know they're maybe looking for a clue or whatever you find this book that's been hidden you you open it up and pause and you go to the next group and you kind of keep them like ah oh, what was i about to see and you know you've left them on on a cliffhanger there are different gms that i've seen that have done a really good job with this uh, i believe um i'm going to blank their last name jason somebody that does uh is the game master for uh, the la by night stream doing um uh, vampire the masquerade 5e is really really good when the party splits they they say you know just like hold it right there you know they just they get uh, they get you right to the the split you know group right to a tantalizing point and then just leave them right there and go back to the other group and 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 by doing it that way or even kind of almost inventing a cliffhanger as best you can you can definitely keep people engaged and wanting to see what happens to the story in, 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 in both directions, you know? So I think that's something to definitely practice with, you know, um, no matter what they're going to do to go to talk to somebody or, or searching for a clue or, you know, getting somewhere, whatever it is, um, find those points to pause it that are just before they discover something or just before they talk to somebody or just before something happens and transition that back and definitely just keep always be aware of, of never staying too long uh, on one group so that you can keep um, both group, you know, both, you know, split sections um, interested. They also talk about managing time um, because it's not like, as they talk about, it's not like uh, combat where it, everybody's on the same time on the same round or whatever, you know, and, and call Cthulhu again, for example, you know, someone might do something that takes an hour while someone else is doing something that's taking several hours, you know, so you're managing time differently. You're almost not even having to necessarily track it. Um, so specifically it's, I, I prefer to think of it almost as a cinematic blend or a montage or something like that and treat it that way to where time almost becomes irrelevant in, unless it, unless it's something that, that really needs to be paid attention to, which I think in most cases it, it isn't unless you're, you know, splitting the party to try to, you know, keep a bomb from going off or something like that that has a specific timer to it. But it does kind of mention thinking about time differently um, when you have a, a, a split party, depending on what the situation is. And then finally, they talk about something interesting because um, this uh, a GM that I played for um, in their Castles and Crusades game for a while. I wasn't able to stay in the game because it was just at a day and time that, that no longer worked for me after a while. But they did this. <clears throat> they talk about splitting off the player groups. Um, you know, deliberately for different effects, like maybe playing, you know, if a party splits, trying to run a couple of them on one day by themselves and another day with the other group, or even having one-on-one -on -one sessions with each player. And that's something that this GM did. I never participated in one, but there were some weeks where 
some people weren't going to get to play so instead they scheduled a couple of one-on-one -on -one sessions with different players where they were really focused on their own you know characters specific goals so um, this involved like one player her character was trying to locate a family member i believe and another was <clears throat> they were the gm was really big on on having players have to actually do training and stuff like that to level up which sounds like it would be a pain in the butt but it actually they were skilled enough to where there was some artistry to it to where nobody questioned or complained about it, it was actually kind of cool <clears throat> which tells you that they were a good gm to be able to pull that off because normally um, training and that kind of level stuff is just hand waved, not even thought of being incorporated in the game. And if it is, it's it's clumsily done. But they did it. They did it well. And one way they did it was by kind of splitting the party, having one-on-one -on -one sessions, even if they're very brief. You know, not a four-hour one-on-one session, but maybe just jumping online with them for thirty or forty minutes and, and doing something that kind of furthered their own personal story. So that's another idea that's an interesting one and one to think about. Um, especially with the shift to so much online gaming and everything, that's one that's easier to pull off than it necessarily would have been. And, uh, you know, and, and I've mentioned several times, Invisible Sun, I believe, has mechanisms like that where there can be some kind of split party game away from the regular session where, you know, one-on-one -on -one player, act, you know, interaction and activity that can that, you know, that can further the story and everything else. So, so anyway, I, I, I just really thought this was a really well-written post with a lot of um, thoughtful ideas and, and everything that, um, that, you know, might help you, you know, it's such a law, it's such a sacred cow kind of law, don't split the party, but it can be done and, and can work really well if you keep some things in mind. So anyway, Great post from Tomas Jimenez Rioa, and that's over at tribality.com. Outro. All right, that is a show for this week. Starting to have some mic problems, but thankfully only happening at the end. Big thanks to Ian Usom for coming by. Back the show, patreon.com forward slash thought eater. Only a dollar a month, patreon.com forward slash thought eater. Remember, all the links are up over the thought eater blog. Got a kind of couple of funny memes for you under the outro tab, but that's it. I'll talk to you on Friday. Let's go, Logan. Zeroing in on your mental trade. Gonna help you escape from the grind. Thought eater gonna blow your mind. Boom, 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 boom.